Hello and welcome to COVID-19, A Veterinary Perspective, a special mid-season edition of Pause and Reflect with Zoetis. I'm Dr. Kim Farina, a veterinarian and your host, and in this episode, we take time away from our regular podcast topics to discuss the uncertain times we're in during the coronavirus pandemic. I will be interviewing three veterinarians from Zoetis who have extraordinary qualifications to give us some unique perspectives on the pandemic. Dr. Christine Smith is our first guest today. Dr. Smith currently serves as medical lead for cross-parasiticides for Zoetis. We are so glad you could take some time out of your schedule to join us today. Thank you for having me. You have such an impressive background. Besides being awarded your DVM degree from the Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University, you are a board-certified specialist in zoo and wildlife medicine. Where did you complete your residency? Thank you. I completed my residency at the Wildlife Conservation Society's Bronx Zoo in New York. Ah, and I was reading you have over 15 years of research experience in zoonotic disease emergence from wildlife, as well as pandemic preparedness and response. And you've served in a number of leadership positions too. So tell us more. I completed my training at uh, Wildlife Conservation Society or WCS right at the time H5N1 bird flu was infecting people in Asia. So I stayed on as an international field veterinarian investigating the avian origin and spread of h 5N1 in Africa and Asia, and I later became the assistant director of WCS's Global Health Programs, where we had boots on the ground in over 100 countries. Then I moved on to the associate director of health and policy at EcoHealth Alliance, working with various governmental and United Nations agencies on zoonotic disease issues. That's great. I'd like to start off by setting the stage for zoonotic infectious diseases. Tell us why everyone needs to know about them. Infectious diseases cause about a quarter of human deaths worldwide. Zoonotic infectious diseases are those infectious diseases that are transmitted from animals to humans, like leptospirosis, for example. More than 60% of infectious diseases are actually zoonotic, most of which come from wildlife. And I want to make a distinction early on in our discussion, because often we hear about zoonotic infectious diseases, and then we hear about zoonotic emerging infectious diseases. Sure. Emerging infectious diseases are those that we haven't seen before, like COVID-19, and a whopping 75% of those originate in wildlife. Examples of zoonotic emerging infectious diseases have included HIV, avian flus, Nipah virus, even Lyme, which really was only discovered a few decades ago. With 75% of these emerging infectious diseases originating from wildlife, where do you think the next global pandemic will come from? Now, I know the answer, but take us through how this is going to happen. So there is a high likelihood that the next global pandemic will originate from contact with wildlife, just like the one we're currently in. How does it happen? In developing countries all around the world, as human population grows, our push into wildlife habitat with agricultural crops and livestock farms, hunting for wildlife consumption and trade, and even natural resource extraction like mining, those increase the opportunity for contact between wildlife, domestic animals, and humans. So while we might assume this isn't our problem here in the US, I think we're all learning the lesson that a disease outbreak on one side of the world can show up here with just a single plane flight. Yes, undoubtedly. Many veterinarians would agree that we are the frontline defense against zoonotic disease, but we may not know all the whys behind that statement. 
Can you help us better understand the reasons? Well, veterinarians have long served on the front line in the battle against zoonotic diseases. I think in pet care, we're used to educating people on preventing Lyme and rabies, lepto, ringworm, and more. In wildlife medicine, we have a wider range of species as patients and many more corresponding zoonoses to face. Many of our patients belong to vulnerable populations. If they're spreading diseases to nearby humans, they're more likely to be at risk of persecution. Also, like our pet care colleagues, wildlife vets took an oath to protect public health. So if people are becoming sick, we're often the ones turned to for answers on how, when, and where these pathogens are emerging from wildlife. For the past couple of decades, I worked with colleagues in wildlife health to try to get ahead of the curve of outbreaks, ideally detecting pathogens in wildlife and identifying the drivers or causes behind how they may or already are crossing into people. That's incredible work. You and your colleagues are superheroes. So who else makes up this Justice League? (laughs) Well, we've done this through building partnerships. Partnerships with human health labs, universities, epidemiologists, ecologists, governments, and the private sector, all in collaboration to try to target high-risk areas of the world, conduct baseline pathogen surveillance in wildlife and in close-contact humans, and train partners in at-risk countries, all with the goal of understanding, preparing for, and hopefully curbing the risk of the next pandemic. Let's talk more about COVID-19. What do you know about the virus and its relationship with wildlife? I know we have to talk about bats. They just don't seem to get a break, do they? (laughs) I think bats are amazing animals. They're the only mammal that flies. They make up almost a quarter of all mammalian diversity. There's over a thousand species of bats covering the whole planet with the exception of Antarctica. And they provide key pollination and insect control services to our ecosystems. And as individuals, they have endearing, curious personalities that I really enjoyed in patients as both in in working with them in zoo medicine and in wildlife medicine. Wait a minute. You said they're endearing? I don't think I've ever heard that word associated (laughs) with bats. Yes, they're they're very cute and, and endearing. But bats in particular carry a wide range of viruses. Through surveillance work of both EcoHealth Alliance and China's Wuhan Institute of Virology, we've identified hundreds of coronavirus strains in bats. In 2002, a human respiratory disease of unknown origin emerged in China, resulting in a near pandemic across 37 countries. Over 8,000 people were infected, 10% of which died. The virus was labeled SARS for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and it was found to be a coronavirus originating in bats, infecting civet cats that were sold in live wildlife markets in China. This is helpful. So keep leading us through the timeline. How does this look? Again, in 2012, another respiratory disease of unknown origin emerged in the Middle East. Over 2,500 cases across 27 countries this time, more than a third of infected people died before spread of MERS was curbed. However, new cases continue to emerge in the Middle East to this day. Bats were found to be the original source of this coronavirus as well, which became established in camels that then transmitted it to their owners. Camels? Really? And I I just know we're not done hearing about those bats, are we? You're right, Dr. Farina. We've found that COVID-19, also known as SARS-2, is 97% genetically related to a coronavirus strain found in the horseshoe bat in Southeast Asia. But given that these bats were hibernating when COVID-19 emerged, and there are some differences in the binding protein of this strain, 
We believe that this time again, there was likely an intermediate host. The genetic evidence so far is hinting at the pangolin, although we just don't know for sure. Pangolins, also known as spiny anteaters, although they're not anteaters at all, are very cute. They're shy little guys who are severely exploited by the international wildlife trade and heavily consumed in Southeast Asia. Regardless of how it happened, COVID-19 is an RNA virus that has adapted to spread human to human much more effectively than previous coronaviruses, while still causing significant morbidity and mortality in a relatively naive global human population. Yes, unfortunately, that's the case. Dr. Smith, thank you so much for starting off this special edition of Pause and Reflect with Zoetis for us. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Up next, Dr. Karen Stasiak will continue our discussion on zoonotic diseases and also offer a unique perspective about vaccines that you're not going to want to miss. Dr. Karen Stasiak is our guest for the second segment, a veterinarian who is currently the veterinary medical lead for biologicals with Zoetis. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, I have to tell you, when I read your bio, your very diverse background just amazed me. You are a veterinarian and earned your DVM degree from the Ohio State University, but you also have a master's degree in nursing from the University of Cincinnati. I feel like there's got to be a story here. (laughs) Yes, I actually started my career as a neonatal nurse practitioner working in the newborn intensive care. And about five years into that, I decided I just wanted to know more. So I went on to study veterinary medicine. And I have always said that being a nurse practitioner made me a better veterinarian. But being a veterinarian made me a better nurse practitioner and ended up having an overlapping career of 20 years in the newborn intensive care unit. However, when I graduated vet school, I did realize that I was taking care of patients that can't talk and have parents, which is exactly the same thing that I'd been doing. So it must be my thing. (laughs) And you were in private practice for a number of years. You owned a mixed animal practice in Colorado, but it appears your thirst for knowledge was still not quenched because you have additional training and experience in laboratory animal medicine, right? Yeah, that's correct. You know, I think the interest of my human medicine background, my veterinary medicine background, I wanted to seek some additional training in comparative animal medicine. And that allowed me to work uh, in the laboratory at National Jewish Center for Immunology and Respiratory Medicine in Denver as part of my private practice. And wait, Dr. Stasiak is not done yet. You are currently enrolled in a second master's degree program still related to medicine. It's not like you went rogue and you're studying art history or wine, right? (laughs) Right. But I am fascinated with infectious disease, and I just wanted to know more. So I enrolled and am currently in the master's program for clinical microbiology and infectious disease at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Yeah, that's that's quite remarkable. Thank you for sharing your story with us. In the first segment, Dr. Christine Smith talked with us about coronaviruses and wildlife. Can you please explore coronaviruses and pets with us? Sure. Coronaviruses infect many animal species, including dogs and cats. And this has been going on long before the SARS outbreak in 2003 and the current COVID-19 outbreak. Coronaviruses are um, envelope viruses. They're RNA viruses, but they're classified into different genres. There's alpha, beta, gamma, and delta coronaviruses, and they're all a little bit different. Coronaviruses can infect the GI tract, be enteric, or the respiratory tract. 
Let's talk about cats first. Sure. When we consider um, coronavirus in cats, feline infectious peritonitis virus is uh, one that was first identified in 1963. It's an alpha coronavirus. And, you know, this virus is a mutation from uh, a more ubiquitous form of an enteric feline coronavirus. But this virus is able to cause severe disease in cats and is most often fatal. Dogs have uh, a different coronavirus. This was first identified in 1971. And like feline infectious peritonitis virus, it's an alpha coronavirus. Uh, it causes enteric disease. And when you look at the genomic organization of both the feline and canine coronaviruses, it suggests that recombination events have occurred over time. Uh, there's been another coronavirus in dogs identified in 2003, a canine respiratory coronavirus, and it's a beta coronavirus, as is SARS and the current COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, but there's no evidence that this respiratory coronavirus of dogs can infect humans at all. There are vaccinations for these canine and feline uh, coronaviruses, but there's no cross-protection from the enteric coronaviruses. So there's no vaccine for canine respiratory coronavirus or COVID-19. They're just different uh, genres of coronaviruses. Of course, a very hot topic in the media is the potential for pets to get infected with COVID-19. What can you tell us? Yeah, there have been a few reports of uh, pet dogs and cats testing positive for this SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus causing COVID-19. And, you know, we're likely going to see more reports of this continuing. But there's differences in host cell tropisms and cellular receptors between the coronaviruses. So, um, for example, SARS uh, and the virus of COVID-19, they bind to an ACE2 receptor Whereas talking about the canine and feline enteric viruses, those bind to a different receptor. Yes, and that's an important species difference, isn't it? It, it really is. And, you know, there's been some investigation looking at um, the COVID-19 virus, and it is able to bind to dog ACE2 receptors, but the replication is inefficient. Um, the virus can also bind to ferret and cat ACE2 receptors uh, as well. Are there any studies supporting real-world transmission of COVID-19 from pets to humans? The short answer is no. Um, there is no evidence of dog, cat, or domestic animal transmission of COVID-19 to humans. Uh, there's a recent study out of China that evaluated experimental infection of dogs, cats, ferrets, and some domestic species. And in that study, the virus was able to replicate in ferrets and cats. However, this experimental challenge study in no way represents real-world transmission of COVID-19 from a human to a cat, and then the ability of the cat to transmit that back to another human. Uh, I would be far more worried about getting COVID-19 from a human and not maintaining their social distance. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> As a veterinarian, a common question I get is how to handle patients who have lapsed on vaccinations during this social distancing time. Yeah, I mean, during this time of social distancing related to COVID-19, dogs and cats may become lapsed uh, on their timely vaccine boosters. Decisions about the need to complete a vaccine series uh, should really be determined by the veterinarian based on risk. So incomplete puppy kitten series, is that more of a risk versus an adult dog's annual booster in the context of the risk we're taking of, with the COVID-19 exposure for people? Yeah. And, and, you know, what we have to talk about is there's overdue and then there's like 
overdue where immunity is truly compromised. Vaccines have variable duration of immunity based on the type of vaccine. In general, for yearly vaccines, they're considered lapsed when the due date is exceeded by six weeks. This means that an adult dog or cat may be lapsed one year and six weeks before being considered overdue for a yearly administered vaccination. However, there are duration of immunity studies and serological studies that allow longer dosing intervals that may be helpful during this time. Let's get a little more specific because obviously Zoetis makes core vaccines for dogs and cats. Can you dive a little deeper on immunity? Yeah. I mean, specific to Zoetis vaccines, the core dog and cat vaccines have memory responses out to four years. So that should be helpful during this time. There is a 15-month duration of immunity on label for Vanguard CR Lyme that gets you an extra three months for this uh, annual vaccine. There are studies for leptospirosis vaccines showing out to 15 months as well. CIV vaccination is generally considered an annual vaccine in the absence of duration of immunity studies. So dogs lapsed greater than six weeks will need to restart the two-dose series for optimal protection. We did see dogs that lapsed six months on their influenza vaccines during one of the California outbreaks, and they were getting sick. So there was a study looking at evaluating the protective immunity of one dose of CIV H3 and 2 vaccines. And dogs in that study who received one dose did have less clinical signs after challenge compared to unvaccinated dogs. How about Bordetella or rabies? Modified live vaccines such as uh, intranasal oral bordetella will provide protection with one dose, even if they're lapsed. When we're thinking about rabies, lapsed rabies vaccination becomes a local ordinance issue. However, one dose will return the pet back into compliance and is immediately considered currently vaccinated. Great. That makes perfect sense. Thank you. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much for all of this information. That was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Our third and final segment of this special edition of Pause and Reflect with Zoetis puts the spotlight on Dr. Annette Litster, a veterinarian who will give us strategies for COVID-19, social distancing, and how this all fits together in a veterinary hospital. It's up next. Stay tuned. Dr. Annette Litster is our guest for our final segment, a board-certified veterinarian in feline medicine who joined Zoetis in January 2014 as a senior veterinary specialist. Her primary work is in infectious diseases, feline medicine, and shelter medicine. Thank you for joining us today, or should I say this afternoon, all the way from England? Yeah, that's right. And the sun's out and we're all staying in. You have a master's degree in clinical epidemiology and a PhD in feline heartworm disease. Why was feline heartworm disease of particular interest to you? Well, I think it combined my love of cats with a real science mystery because back when I was doing my PhD, we really didn't know too much about feline heartworm disease and there was so much to learn about a disease that seems so different in cats to what we'd grown used to in dogs. So, you know, I, I went on a trail and uh, this is is where I've ended up, I suppose. We're just getting to know each other, but I think one of the wonderful things you bring to the table is this lovely combination of 
academic experience and private practice experience. You served as a tenured associate professor of small animal internal medicine at Purdue University, and you have 17 years experience of working in small animal general practice and a specialist feline practice. So what this all boils down to is, gosh, we have a lot to learn from you. Did you did you enjoy one career experience over another? I think I've been in the very lucky position where each one that I've done, I have felt like I've enjoyed it very much. And then a new opportunity has come to me. I've embraced it, moved to that and enjoyed it too. So it's been a gradual progression uh, each one seems to me to be even better than the last. Ah, oh, that's wonderful. Our listeners may be thinking, Dr. Annette Litster. Boy, that name sounds familiar. And you know what? They're right. It should sound familiar unless you live in a cave because Dr. Litster is also editor-in-chief of the Veterinary Journal, a member of the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery Editorial Board, and is a member of the American Association of Feline Practitioners Cat-Friendly Practice Council. On top of that, she is a very much sought-out speaker for major national meetings. And the cool thing is, here she is with us. How fortunate. Now let's talk about COVID-19 in veterinary hospitals. How long does COVID-19 live on surfaces? Well, anything to do with COVID-19, as you'd be very aware, Kim, the research is very fast moving. This one can be quite technical as well because it depends on what surfaces you're thinking about. There was a recent New England Journal of Medicine report that uh, showed that the virus can survive in aerosols for hours and on surfaces for up to days, just depending on the particular type of surface that you're investigating. The amount of virus on the surfaces depends on the initial amount present. So the more virus that's initially present on a surface, the longer it takes to decay to non-infectious amounts. What are the most effective ways to clean and disinfect? So SARS-CoV-2 is an enveloped virus and the envelope around that virus particle is easily destroyed by most routine disinfectants. This also destroys the virus. The Environmental Protection Agency also has a comprehensive online list of disinfectants for use against the virus. And I believe the American Animal Hospital Association also has recommendations, right? That's right. AHA recommends that exam rooms and cages should be cleaned and disinfected immediately following use and that gloves should be worn during cleaning and disinfection. This is a multi-step process. First, you dry clean with a broom or microfiber cloth, then go to wet cleaning with warm water and detergent to thoroughly remove any organic matter. Then follow with a rinse with clean warm water. The area should be allowed to dry or dried with a clean cloth. Then you apply disinfectant, making sure you've followed the manufacturer's instructions. After the disinfectant contact time of 10 minutes, another rinse is performed with clean water, followed by drying time before the area is ready for use again. Okay, I got it. 
for all of the veterinary professionals in clinical practice, but how do you social distance and still do the work? Yes, this can be tricky because the usual distance of two meters or six feet might not always be achievable depending on the type of work we're doing, but we should aim for this wherever possible. If close contact is required to perform a procedure such as taking a blood draw that requires restraining the animal while another team member performs the procedure, first think about whether the procedure is really necessary or could it be achieved with fewer people being involved? Set everything up for the procedure to minimize the time taken so that the amount of contact between the team members involved is reduced. Another useful concept is the creation of contact groups within the veterinary team. That reduces the number of combinations of people who come in contact with one another. Also, you can look at how spaces in the hospital are laid out. For instance, Can seating at the front desk or in the lunchroom or in office spaces be separated? Or the number of people in any one area reduced? Yeah, those are great points. And obviously, if someone isn't feeling well, they need to stay home, right? Yes, that's absolutely correct. We all need to follow the current protocols in our local areas. Hand washing has never been done so well or so often, I'm glad to report, And this is really an essential principle in keeping all of us safe. High contact surfaces in the veterinary hospital need particularly frequent cleaning and disinfection. And we discussed how to do that just earlier. The issue of whether to wear masks or not is complicated by the current shortages, of course. They have most value in preventing people who are shedding the virus from infecting other people. Hopefully, uh, people who are shedding the virus are not in the workplace, although you can have asymptomatic shedding in some cases. However, the emphasis really should be on physical distancing and excellent hand hygiene. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. This is very useful information. It's very practical. Let's switch gears and address some of the more common questions that pet owners have about COVID-19 and and the best ways to answer them. For example, can a pet's hair coat be contaminated with the COVID-19 virus and then infect people? At this time, there's no evidence that SARS-CoV-2 can spread to people from the skin or fur of companion animals but more information is emerging daily. The virus can survive on surfaces for at least a few hours, as we said earlier, perhaps a few days. Pets living with a person who's infected with SARS-CoV-2 could potentially carry the virus on their hair coat. So the CDC has recommended that people who are sick with the virus should avoid direct contact with pets. Those in home isolation should limit their interaction with household pets and service animals should be permitted to remain with their handlers. Bathing your pet with shampoo will mechanically remove and inactivate viral particles, just like hand washing with soap. But this isn't necessarily a recommendation at this stage. An emergency kit should be prepared for each pet in the household, but what should owners include? Yes, an emergency kit is a great idea at all times, not just now. And the following items should be included. Firstly, 
what do you need for transportation? A carrier for a cat or a dog, a sturdy leashes and harnesses as well. What about food, preventives and medication? At least two weeks worth and also information about feeding schedules, medical conditions, behaviour issues and the name and contact details of the pet's veterinary hospital makes sense too. Pet waste collection shouldn't be forgotten, so it's a good idea to pack garbage bags, cat litter and a litter pan and scoop. Identification is obviously very important, so current photos are a good idea alongside descriptions of the pet and any other identification such as a collar or tag number. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Let's move on. Many pet owners want to know, can I still walk my dog? What about dog walking programs? Yes, great question. You need to follow some local guidance regarding restrictions to movement outside your home. However, if someone is taking a dog for a walk for pet owners who are infected with the COVID-19 virus or who is in self-isolation, care should be taken when the dog's handed over to the walker. But the overall risk to the dog walker is considered to be low. Dog walkers should provide their own leashes and keep, of course, the usual two metres or six feet distance when the dog is handed over. Both the dog walker and the dog owner should wash their hands or use hand sanitizer before and after the handover to minimize risk. Face masks are in short supply and of limited benefit during quick interactions like that. So it's probably uh, not going to be something that you'll need for that particular handover. And as we've seen, kindness is overflowing during these times and people want to help. What if someone wants to volunteer at a local animal shelter or do emergency fostering during the pandemic? What should they do? If you're well and you'd like to offer volunteer help or emergency foster care to your local shelter, there's currently a heightened need. Many shelters are experiencing economic hardships and staff shortages and that's combined with reduced adopter traffic because of the pandemic. So you should contact your local shelter to discuss their current needs and what kind of help you could provide, all while abiding by your local COVID-19 policies. The Maddie Shelter Medicine Program at the University of Florida and the Maddie's Fund websites are also really great resources for volunteers, shelters, and foster networks. Yes, they are excellent resources. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. We appreciate your time and expertise. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity, Kim. Great to meet you. Thank you. This has been a special edition of Pause and Reflect with Zoetis, dedicated to providing answers to questions you may have had about COVID-19. We are grateful to our guests, Dr. Christine Smith, Dr. Karen Stasiak, and Dr. Annette Litster for their unique perspectives and incredible knowledge. New episodes of Pause and Reflect with Zoetis are on their way. Subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to, and you will be notified when they launch. I'm Dr. Kim Farina, and this has been Pause and Reflect with Zoetis. I'll talk to you soon.